Hey, welcome to Crosswalk Church. Today, Pastor Jeff is bringing you a teaching, so head over to crosswalkphoenix.com and click on the Listen tab. There you can download the Crosswalk Notes to follow along. And now, here's Pastor Jeff. Just to recapture a little bit what the series itself is about, is about those things that can potentially rob us of the true meaning of our Christmas, that can, that can, that, that can cause to fly away uh, the, the true meaning of Christmas for us and our ability to really reflect and worship God at a time that is built for reflection and worship of an amazing God who loved each of us so much that he sent his one and only son into the flesh to live a perfect life in our place and to die a perfect sacrificial death in our place. This is so important for us to recapture because this centers us really for the rest of the year to to be able to focus and come back to this point that that Christmas is one of the most meaningful times of the year in our salvation history because this is when God fulfilled his promise to send us a savior. So as we're talking about it today, you notice the title there is family and well, to say the least, sometimes family can be complicated, can't it? And I, I, I don't know how you feel about your family exactly. There are a lot of people in the room this morning, and I, I'm sure that as you sit here, we're a little bit all over the place in terms of our relationship with our family and how close we feel to our family or how distant we feel from our family. One of the things that I keenly felt growing up uh, as, as a member of my family was, was that my family was, to put it mildly, half a bubble off. We were just weird. And, and in fact, at, at times we were, in my mind, embarrassingly weird. I didn't want other people to know exactly all the things that were going on in my family. And so for me, some things needed to stay firmly behind the scenes from my friends and, and, and other people in my life. But as I grew older and I, and I got to know other friends, and of course as I became a pastor, I, I came to realize that all families to an extent have some weirdness going on. And maybe I wasn't all that different. So I don't know if you have any weird family Christmas traditions, do you? I found a couple of weird family Christmas traditions. You might enjoy these. And hopefully they make you realize that however weird your family is, it might not be so weird after all. Our weird family Christmas tradition has to be the orange smashing contest at Christmas Eve dinner. Everyone at the table gets an orange to smash and gets one hit to do as much damage as they can to the orange. My grandma is the judge, and the winner gets to open their presents first in the morning. We've never done that in my family. I can just, as weird as my family is. While I was growing up, my dad and I would hide a potato wedge somewhere on the Christmas tree every year to see how long it would take for my mother to notice. Our record was nine days. <laughs> I love this one. 
Even though my siblings and I are all moved out of the house, when we get to my mother's house on Christmas Day, she makes us wait at the top of the stairs so she can get a picture of us running downstairs to our pile of presents under the tree. We are all in our 20s. Yeah. My dad did this thing around Christmas time. It was called Mr. Tree. (laughs) Basically, my mom would bring us to the window and he would stand behind the Christmas tree and pretend like the tree was talking to us. (laughs) After Christmas, they would tell us that Mr. Tree went back to the Christmas tree farm. Imagine my horror when I learned that Mr. Tree was not a thing that other kids had. All right, last one. This is my favorite. It's a little bit of a longer one, but you're going to really enjoy this one. My uncle received a prepackaged and extremely unappetizing fruitcake. We all love getting Christmas fruitcakes. As a Christmas present when he was about 17. As a joke, he wrapped it up and gave it to my grandmother on Christmas Day. The next year, my uncle opened his final Christmas present from my grandmother. It was the fruitcake, still uneaten and unwrapped. A legacy began. Every Christmas, the current bearer of the fruitcake gave it to another in increasingly ludicrous ways. One year, my grandmother asked my uncle to pour the orange juice on Christmas morning. Inside the carton was the fruitcake. Another year, an anonymous gift of gourmet jello arrived at my uncle's door. Suspended within was the fruitcake. The next year, my uncle baked the fruitcake into a loaf of bread. While my grandmother was cutting the bread, she cut the end off of the fruitcake. She nailed it back on with a roofing wall, a nail. Uh, often third parties are coerced into assisting with the delivery of the fruitcake. Within my, when my mother married my father, her initiation process as the new daughter-in-law was to present my grandmother on Christmas with the fruitcake as part of her wedding duties. My grandmother retired from the school board one Christmas, and her confused supervisor's parting gift to her was the fruitcake. <laughs> the fruitcake arrives in decorative wreaths. It's found in a daughter's dollhouse. It's lowered from the ceiling with twine during Christmas dinner. <laughs> the fruitcake is now 36 years old. <laughs> we have yet to unwrap it. Yeah. Family can be pretty interesting, can't it? And, and yet, at the same time, we're not always sure how to deal with our family. And it can cause quite a bit of trepidation during the big holiday season because families have a unique power as well. We can laugh a little bit about our family, but family has the power, I think, for most of us to hurt us in ways that no other people can. Family has the ability to affect and steer the course of our lives the way that few other people can. Family has the ability to take a moment that is going so well and on the turn of a dime, turn it into a moment that's going horribly. And so we give our families a lot of authority, a lot of power. And and so we have to ask ourselves, number one, should we be giving our, our families that much sway 
over our thinking, over our emotions, and most of all, over our spirit, over our soul. And then, and then maybe even before we get there to what's our perspective of how much sway and how much authority do we grant our family, let's ask this. If we've kind of kept the craziness of our family secret, it may be because we're embarrassed and ashamed. And it may be because we don't think anyone else would understand. But I want to start today's message by making a simple claim. And it is this, that if there is anyone who understands the craziness of family life, it's your Savior Jesus. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you through some points to demonstrate that you have a, a Savior who is compassionate, yes, about your sins. Yes, uh, 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 about the, the punishment that all of us deserve because of our sins. And that's why he came, to, to live and die in our place. But he's also compassionate about the struggles we experience in our life. And he understands how much sway and power a family can have over us. And not only does he understand, but he's compassionate about it. So grab those crosswalk notes. And I want to just ask you this question to start with. Does your family craziness sometimes threaten your Christmas joy and interrupt your worship of Jesus? If the answer to that is yes, I want you to listen carefully today to, to today's message. Let's start out with Luke chapter 8, verses 19 to 21. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. There was a huge crowd. Jesus is in the midst of teaching here. Uh, we, this is a story that follows a couple of parables that Jesus had taught, and all of these were really uh, meant to illustrate how important it is uh, for us to listen carefully to the Word of God. You've got the parable of the sower and the seed, talking about the different kinds of heart soil that the seed of the word can fall into. You've got the, the parable of the lamp on the stand that, that the teaching is basically God's word is this amazing light that needs to shine into the world and into your heart. So this is Jesus teaching about the importance and the power of this book. Now, as he's teaching about that, Luke, and we think Luke might have inserted this story out of chronological order here to further Jesus' point about the importance of God's word. But crowds are around him. They're, they're listening to Jesus teach about the importance of, Jesus, of God's word and of listening to it. And all of a sudden, in the midst of this teaching, someone makes their way through the crowd and says, someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Jesus, in other words, dealt with family. And in fact, his family, like your family or my family, sometimes made demands on him. Now I want you to get this picture. If it were in modern days, 
This would be Jesus teaching in some university classroom, and someone, uh, your family, or his family, makes their way onto campus all the way through security and everything else, and, and, and can't get into the classroom because not only is the classroom full, but the hallways outside are full, and they can see that he's teaching, but they make sure that he gets a message that says, stop teaching, we're here. You ever have that with your family? Drop whatever you're doing. We're your family. You need to come and attend to us. If you have ever had that experience of your family making demands of you, then you understand what Jesus is going through. And it, it might seem interesting to you how Jesus responds to this when he says, you want to know who my true mother and brothers are? Not those people. My true mother and brothers are you people who are sitting here listening to the word of God with me as I teach it. Now that's, that's a pretty bold statement. Can you, we, we just went through that whole series a few weeks ago called Boundaries. Jesus is setting a boundary here. And he's not being disrespectful. He's just simply saying, let's define family. And in the sight of God, what family first means is those who listen to God's word and put it into practice are in God's eyes. We've sometimes called it here at Crosswalk our first family. That the family of the soul and the family of the spirit. Now, this might, this might sound heretical to some of you. Like, really? He's going to say that the family of the soul and the family of the spirit is more important than my blood family? And sometimes, of course, the two cross over, don't they? If we have believing family. But this is exactly what Jesus is saying here. My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. There are are a couple of other parallel accounts of this, by the way, in the book of Matthew and Mark. And from those, we learn that later on, Jesus actually does go back with his family. And that's very interesting because in a few minutes, we're going to learn why they came here and so boldly interrupted Jesus. Here's my point to get us started. Did Jesus understand the demands of family? Absolutely, because his family also made demands, persistent, in-your-face demands of him as well. And in fact, this goes immediately along with the Christmas message. What is the heart of the Christmas message? It's something called the incarnation. And, And what the incarnation is, is that God, in order to rescue us, because of his great love for us, said, I am going to become one of them. I'm not just going to stand back here and look at their situation clinically from a distance. I am going to get in it with them. Even though I'm God, in this case, the Son of God, and as the Son of God, a spirit, I am going to take on human flesh. That's that's precisely what incarnation means. And then as a human being, as well as true God, 
I'm going to live the perfect life that they can't live, and I'm going to die the perfect sacrificial death that, that, that I don't want them to have to die. I'm going to do that as their substitute. That's what the incarnation is. The book of Hebrews talks about it. For this reason, it's in your notes, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way. Notice that phrase, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Will you underline that phrase, merciful and faithful high priest, in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Part of the gospel message, very clearly here, is that Jesus came into flesh to make atonement for our sins. That is, to, to, to make the perfect sacrificial offering for our sins so that we could be at one with God. That's what atonement means, uh, a bringing back at one. Jesus' sacrifice did that and, and took away our sins. But there's another element of the gospel that's so important and often gets overlooked, a, a, a sweet message of comfort to us that Jesus came also to be our high priest. Now, in the Old Testament, a high priest was an intercessor, a go-between, a representative of one person to another and of that person back, a reconciler, a helper. Jesus came to do all of that for us, to be the go-between between God and us, to, to, to explain us to God, to explain God to us, and that's why we listen so carefully to Jesus when he talks, because we know that he is our high priest. He's our go-between. Now, as that perfectly human go-between, Jesus, and the Bible makes this clear, experienced personally, Again, not clinically, not from a distance, but deeply, closely, and personally, the kinds of experiences that you and I have. And that includes a deep personal experience of what it's like to have family. We see a little bit of that here. We're going to see more of it in a moment. But for today's message, what I most want you to get out of this concept that Jesus is our high priest is he did all of this because of his compassion for you. You may feel no one would get my family. No one would understand the struggles I have. No one would possibly be able to mine the depths of the hurt that my family has caused me. And what this concept of Jesus coming at Christmas to be our go-between, our high priest, and to live perfectly as a human with us, it means that, yes, there is one who understands you. And further than, than understands you is compassionate for what you're going through with your family or what you've gone through with your family. And so I want to start there in this beautiful message. So take this Take this down, because Jesus was made human like us in every way. He understands the demands of having a family. In fact, Jesus, by saying what he says here, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice, is really telling us he didn't just deal with one family, he dealt with two. He had a physical family, which we're going to see in just a moment. A lot of times people don't realize that Jesus 
had a physical family. They might know that he had a mother named Mary and a stepfather named Joseph, but a lot of people haven't, um, haven't learned yet that Jesus also had brothers and sisters that he grew up with. We'll touch on that in a moment. But remember, Jesus is also in the midst of this crowd. And in one of those other accounts in the book of Matthew, when, when Jesus says, do you want to know who my family is? He makes it really clear. He points to the people in front of him. The Bible says, you're my family. So, so Jesus had a spiritual family rooted in the word of God and in faith. Jesus also had a, a physical family rooted in blood. And so he, he got the challenges of family, and that's why he's so compassionate. Let's take a look at Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Now, listen to why they're amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Obviously, Jesus has grown up being in, his, in the carpenter shop with his dad, Joseph, right? Because they're not even saying, isn't this the carpenter's son? To them, they see him as the carpenter. Isn't this, this guy's just a, he's just a tradesman. Now he wants to come and teach us? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Those are Jesus' physical brothers. Did you know that Jesus had physical brothers? That there, there are his names. Aren't his sisters, plural, here with us? Now what this means is that Jesus grew up in a family with at least seven children. Because we've got the names of four brothers... Sisters is plural, so that's two, that's six, and Jesus himself would have been seventh, at least, because we don't know how many sisters there were. Jesus grew up in a big physical family. Do you think there were times living in poor little Nazareth? Remember what's said about Nazareth? Can anything good come out of that place? Where maybe Joseph struggled to put three square solid meals on the table every day? Do you think there were times when Jesus witnessed his mom and dad having a spat? Do you think there were times where Jesus' brothers, now, now imagine being a brother to the perfect son of God. Do you think you're always going to get along with Mr. Perfect? Uh, you can imagine what might have gone along in that family environment. And in fact, we're going to see one ramification of, the, of this is that it took a long time for Jesus' brothers to believe in him. A long time. And so G Jesus gets it. A and yet, not only does he have a family, it's very clear that he loves his family. Remember the picture of Jesus hanging on the cross? And think about how much pain and agony he had to be 
had to be in while he hung on that cross. And yet, what was his, one of his main concerns that he voiced as he hung on the cross and saw his mother standing there in front of him? I want to make sure she's taken care of. And he looks to the apostle John, part of his spiritual family, maybe part of his physical family too as a cousin. And he says, John, will you take care of my mom and make her your mom? And he says, in effect, to Mary, Mary, here's your son. After I'm gone, he's going to take care of you. Why would Jesus do that if he didn't love his mother and his family? So again, there's an intimate connection. And Jesus must have been vulnerable and open to the influence of his family. So write this down. Jesus had a family whom he loved. Do you have a family that you love despite all the difficulties and all the drama and all the complexity of your family? Do you find that you still love them? And that it's hard, even if you've said to yourself, I, uh, I don't even know why I want to celebrate Christmas with this family. And yet, there's this strange magnetic attraction. There's this strange willingness to forgive and to love anyway because, after all, we say they're family. Jesus gets that because he loved his family too. Now, Jesus' family, (laughs) they didn't always get him. We touched on that a moment ago. Imagine being one of Jesus' brothers, right? But, but look at this. Now we're going to read Mark 3, and this is Mark's description of what we read above in Luke 8, 19 to 21. This is said in the context of Jesus' family coming to speak to him while he's teaching. Now we learn why they came to speak to him. Mark 3, 21 says, when his family heard about this, They went to do what? Take charge of him, for they said, he's cuckoo. He's gone off his rocker. He is out of his mind. This is what his own family thought about this. And remember, even his mother is in this group. We'd better go and bring him home. He needs some rest. He needs to be just in a place where we can kind of keep him out of sight and not too many people can see what's going on with him because he's just going to confuse a lot of people. That's what they were thinking. Certainly they were not thinking that he's the savior of the world when they came to fetch him. And John tells us why they thought that. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. You see, when, when we don't believe, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, when we see Jesus at work, when we read the promises of the gospel message, things as basic as Jesus is true God and true man in one person, we start to think that sounds awful foolish and ridiculous. And, and I, I don't know that Jesus was doing 
anything unsensible here. He was doing some miraculous things. He was, he was doing some things that were difficult to grasp and understand, as the people in Nazareth say. <laughs> Where did this man get these things? But his teaching made sense. His miracles made sense. And yet, his brothers and sisters and mom at this point couldn't see it, and they couldn't see the message in it that this is God and his plan of salvation. Maybe some of you are there today. And, and you're in church because someone's brought you and you're struggling to go, I, I don't know if I believe this. What's comforting, I hope for you, is to understand that Jesus had his own family not always believe in him, but they kept going. What's really interesting to note is as we get into the book of Acts, it's clear that Jesus brothers did become believers. In fact, the book of James in the New Testament was written by this brother James, and the book of Jude in the New Testament was written by this brother named Judas that we just read his name here. So Jesus' brothers later on, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the powerful drawing of God, were led to faith. But in this moment... Jesus had a family who did not understand him. Write that down. And then you can turn the page. Here's my point. Up till now, what I want you to understand is you may feel like you have to hide the struggles you have with your family. You may feel like no one could possibly understand what you're going through. I hope by reading some of these funny stories that I read at the beginning, you get that maybe your family isn't as strange or unusual or crazy as you think it is. That, that we all have these crazy things that happen in our family. But I hope from reading the Bible that we've read so far, you know now beyond any shadow of a doubt that even if no one else gets your family, Jesus does. Because Jesus had a family. In fact, he had two families. And he loved the, that family. And he had to deal with a family that didn't always understand him, but he kept coming back and relentlessly loving them the way he relentlessly and graciously loves us. And that's how Jesus dealt with his family. But understand, he understands, and you have his compassion. But if you have his compassion and his love as your savior, the next question we need to ask is, do, do you also have his perspective on your family? And this is maybe where it gets practical for the Christmas season. Certainly knowing that you have someone that understands is gonna help you this Christmas season as you go through the craziness, you can just go, Jesus, I know you understand, please help me. I want to encourage you to take your green communication card out today. And if you, one next step that you could do is if you have a family thing that you're concerned about, it's going to distract me this Christmas, put it down as a prayer request. Let us pray with you and for you. That's very practical. But another practical thing is to adopt Jesus' perspective on your physical family. 
and understand his point of view. So let's, let's take a look at that. Matthew 10, 37 to 39. Anyone who loves their father or, mo- or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Can you see Jesus' perspective on his family here? And and it comes out in how he addresses the situation when his family comes to him. And the most important thing about our perspective toward our family is this, do we have the correct order of love? I want you to write that question down somewhere. Do I have the correct order of love? There's no blank for it, just find a a space. Do I have the correct order of love? And that's what Jesus is teaching here. You see, what happens to us and why family is, is... so disturbing sometimes to us is we give them too much power. We give them too much authority. We give them too much sway over our hearts. And and when family gets to be what I guess you could call the majority stakeholder in your heart, your physical family becomes so important that it takes up the majority of your heart, guess who's getting squeezed out? And that's why Jesus says, the one that needs to be the majority stakeholder in your heart is me. Put, and I know that might sound a little bit selfish, but Jesus is just saying, if we put God first, if we put him first, everything else is going to flow and follow, and, and we're going to find that even when life gets rough, and even when family life gets rough, There's a a peace and a joy that stays with us. But that only happens if we have the correct order of love. And that means that we sometimes have to step back and go, have I I started to love or or trust or make expectations of my family that, that are really only expectations that God can bear? I see this often with young people who are dating. They, they think while they're young, in their 20s, they're still dating. If I just find the right person and I get married, life is going to be grand and glorious. And we fed into that in our culture with all these movies. That, that makes all the difference. Just find your soulmate. Fill your heart with your soulmate and everything's going to be great. doesn't work that way. And those of you who've been married for a little while know it doesn't work that way. And so the order of love gets disordered and our life becomes disordered along with it. That's why Jesus says, don't love anyone, not not even your father or mother or son or daughter more than you love me. Love God first. And then love your loved ones, your family members second. That's the correct order of love. And what that means is, there's going to be moments when you have to take responsibility for doing that. Let's write this down. Jesus loved me more than life itself. The interesting thing is Jesus filled his heart with us. And that's why he can call on us to say, 
Love me more than anything else because I have loved you first. Now, Jesus seeks my love above all else, even family. This will mean, and Jesus tells us what it will mean, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. It means owning my responsibility even when it's painful. What does it mean to take up your cross? When Jesus took up the cross, it meant that he was taking the responsibility for our sins. Taking responsibility means that I know I have the power to influence and affect things by my decisions and my actions. So when you have family and you want to correct the order of love, you may find yourself doing things like Jesus did. Oh, you don't want to go to church? I'm going to church because that's where my spiritual family is. Oh, you want to have an argument? I'm not hitting that ball back. I'm, I'm choosing to let the ball just drop right here. Oh, you failed to demonstrate your love to me? Guess what? I'm going to love you anyway and demonstrate my love for you. We're going to love others and take responsibility that I can make my own choices. I can take my own actions, I can say my own words, and they're mine to say, my actions to do, my decisions to make, no matter what anyone else. And we're going to stop saying, you made me do this. You forced me into this. It was because of you that I said that. Now, is that, is that easy sometimes to do? Not at all. It's why Jesus calls it taking up your cross. It's painful and it's heavy to do that sometimes. But Jesus says, if you have the right order of love, love God first and love your family second, you can do it. The second thing is, he says, you got to risk what you have for something that's far superior in the future. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. In other words, sometimes we have to say, what I have now may not be as important as I think it is. And all this work that I'm putting in to preserve my position or preserve my home or, or make sure that I've got the latest model of car, all this stuff that distracts me from having a loving family life, maybe it's not that important. Maybe I need to focus back in on God and be willing to lose what I have in this life so I can achieve something in the future that's far superior. So it means owning my responsibility even when it's painful. It means risking the life I have so that I can possess a life that is far superior. Is our love in the right order? Paul writes to Timothy that this doesn't mean putting your love in the right order doesn't mean neglecting your family. I, I want to be super clear about that. Making boundaries does not mean shirking your responsibility. It means understanding better what your precise responsibilities are 
for taking care of and loving your family. Look at what Paul writes to Timothy. Now, Timothy is a pastor. He's teaching others. Paul's saying, here's what I want you as a pastor of your church to teach your members. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, they should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. Even as far out as your extended family, love them, care for them, do what's right by them. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In other words, does having our love in the right order, does having the right perspective on family mean we're unresponsive to them? That we're neglectful of them? That we turn our back on them and say, I'm done with them? Paul says no. Paul says, even with our physical family, we owe them a debt of love and kindness and grace and forgiveness. We owe them a debt of taking care of them. Write this down. This doesn't mean Jesus wants me to neglect my family or be unresponsive to their needs. But it does mean this. At Christmas time, it means relentless focus on what's most important. And and a willingness to stay focused on what's most important. And what's most important for you at Christmas time is to create space. And we've said this in two messages now. I'm going to end by saying it in a third. Create space for worshiping your Savior. Notice what Paul wrote to the Galatians, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Jesus came to buy us back from sin and death. That's what we need to focus on. That we might receive adoption to sonship. That we might have a new family too. A spiritual family. A soul family. Paul emphasizes and he says, so you are no longer a slave but God's child. Doesn't mean we neglect our family, but it does mean that to be received into Jesus' family and remain in it is of first importance. Here's what I want you to pray about this week. Will you leave today with a renewed commitment to love your physical family as a precious gift from God? Love them, they are a gift from God. And whatever you need to do to get stuff out of the way so that you can love them, do it. As far as it's in your power, even if it means bearing a cross. But keep the right perspective, the right order of love. And remember to love your brother Jesus even more. So before we close, if you would like to hear more messages, head over to CrosswalkPhoenix.com or come and see us. Services are held at Cesar Chavez High School at 41st Avenue and Baseline on Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. Visit our website for directions. And now, some closing thoughts from Pastor Jeff. Let's pray.
my dear brother Jesus, you were born into this world to save me from my sins, to redeem me, to, to help me, a person who was lost and condemned to eternal death. Out of your great love, my brother, you came to rescue me. And Lord, I, I thank you for that. And, and I want to worship you for that. I want to celebrate your birthday because your birthday means so much to me and to the people I love in this life. Lord, send your Holy Spirit so that my heart can respond to your great love for me and, and help me to keep my physical family in perspective this Christmas time. Help them not to be a distraction to me and help me not to be a distraction to them. Lord, wherever forgiveness is needed, as you have first forgiven me, I pray that you will help me forgive them. And Lord, I pray that you will help me keep that right order of love, to love you first and foremost, and then to love them as well. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.